House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Welcome back into the House of Mystery, and I'm Al Warren sitting at the controls. On the East Coast, we have Mr. John Copen here. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Al. How are you? I'm good. Almost slipped and called you a Copenhagen again. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, think we just have to change my name. Make I know it you, easy on you. <laughs> you look like a Cop- Copenhagen. Come on. Okay. Well, I guess the, I'm going to take that as a compliment. Yeah. Uh, now, on the West Coast, we have Mike Brown, Mr. Dark Poutine himself. Uh, how are you doing, Mike? I am excellent. Finished my book, all the edits, and I'm sure that I'll get it back tomorrow for more. Of course. <laughs> that, that's a non-ending thing, right until, you, right until it's in the shelves. Uh, it's, it's just good. They keep coming back at you. It's terrible. I'm pretty sure I can quote every word of it verbatim now. So Yeah. <laughs> it is the most stressful time. Uh, yeah. So that's not unusual. Anyway, um, well, today we have a uh, special guest. Um, I, I was uh, flipping through Netflix, as usual, because that's what we do when we're home all the time. And, um, and of course, I had to pick this one because it was hating Peter Thatchell. So um, what, we, what we did was we've, we've seen it and uh, really impressed, really interesting subject. And uh, what a what a great guy! So uh, we've got him on the line, Peter. Thank you for being here. It's great to join you from London. It's a beautiful, hot, sunny day here. Not like at all the sort of traditional British cold, wet winter. Yeah, so it's, it's a lot of climate change, <laughs> all that stuff going on around. I mean, because it's really hot. I'm up in Canada right now, and it's been really hot. So there you go beginning of the end. How are you doing today, Peter? Uh, I'm fine, thank you. I'm, I'm doing really well. Really loving the warm weather. How did you um, decide to do this uh, documentary? Like, what, what brought it about? Well, the decision to make this documentary was not mine. It was made by the director, Christopher Amos, uh, about six years ago in 2015, he was shocked to discover there hadn't been any documentary about my more than five decades of human rights campaigning. And he was even more shocked when he looked at the the archive and saw so much hate and vitriol directed against me. And that's how the title came about, Hating Peter Tatchell. I, I wonder now, so where do you think all that hate comes from, particularly towards you? It's primarily um, hardline homophobic people, but also a lot of far-right extremists, um, Islamic fundamentalists, and supporters and defenders of various dictatorships like that of President Museveni in Uganda and President Putin in Russia. So uh, now... you go back quite a few years and back to the ACT UP days and, and um, it was, it was kind of like it seemed like it was a real fight and it seemed very controversial and um, it seemed to have worked. But in the last, I don't know, at least five years, we've seen quite a, quite a um, reversal. Um, does, does that worry you, the way that certain governments like, you know, the Donald Trump government and, and all of that 
the way it's gone? Does that sort of worry you that we're, we're falling back? Well, of course, in Britain, we have our own version of Donald Trump light. <laughs> yeah. His name is Boris Johnson. Yeah. Um, very similar tactics from a very similar playbook. Um, you know, so many lies, so many outrageous, uh, bigoted statements, um, so much corruption within his government. And so it's, it's, it's very sad that so many democracies are now really under threat, um, not entirely from far-right extremists, although there is an element there. It's actually coming from fairly mainstream politicians. And that is very worrying because a democracy has to be clean. It has to be transparent, accountable. It has to be without corruption. And it has to be based upon an acknowledgement that although many of us are different from each other, Difference is not a bad thing, and difference should be respected. Back in 1981, when you were um, a Labour Party um, candidate, and you sort of had a, um, a, I guess what we call it, a run-in with Michael Foote, um, who was the uh, party leader. Um, and, if, and, and you ended up not getting elected. Do you think that same thing would happen today in today's dates? Well, you're right. Uh, when I stood for Parliament in the notorious Bermondsey by-election in London in 1983, most commentators described it as the dirtiest, most violent, and certainly most homophobic election in Britain in the 20th century. I was physically assaulted 150 times while canvassing to members of the public. I had 30 attacks upon my flat, including bricks and bottles through the window, two arson attempts, a bullet through my front door, plus a deluge of more than two dozen death threats, mostly by far-right extremist organizations. So it was a real baptism of fire. And uh, when I look back at that period, part of me doesn't really understand how I managed to get through it because it, it was so, so dreadful. I was in fear of my life every day. But, you know, I lost. And after I lost, there was a huge wave of media, political and public revulsion against the way I'd been treated. And this meant that when other candidates came out a year or two or three later, they did not get the rough treatment that I got because people were so ashamed at the way I'd been treated. So I lost, but I made it easier for others to follow in my footsteps. How do you handle something like that? Like what goes on um, in your life? Like how do you, how do you, how do you, how do you change your day-to-day -day life when you have to deal with death threats and bullet through your door and all that? Well, it was difficult, but I took just basic security precautions. The police advised me at night, don't go into your flat and turn on the lights without first drawing all the curtains in case there's a sniper in the block of flats opposite out to shoot you dead. Um, I had to have all my posts checked by the police for bombs. Um, all the area around the windows and the front door were all stripped of everything 
So there was nothing flammable there, which is why the two arson attacks did not cause too much damage. Um, every time I went out, I was always looking around behind my, you know, over my shoulder, behind my back to see who was there. Uh, you know, I was set upon by dogs, um, attacked with fists, boots, bottles, iron bars, sticks of wood. Um, I had my teeth smashed in. Um, I got a black eye. I got cuts and bruises, but fortunately and very luckily, nothing too serious. Um, so I count myself very, very lucky indeed. Yeah, but I, I have to wonder, because in, in a typical day, I, I don't go through that. But, you know, um, certain days, you you know, I can get stressed out. There's people that send send us bad messages, and, and there's still a lot of bad people out there. But you were under a deluge. How could – didn't it make it really hard for you to concentrate on what you were trying to accomplish? Well, it did. But then again, my passion and determination uh, overrode that. And I also thought to myself, I don't want these bigots to grind me down and win. You know, I felt very stubborn, you know. I'm not going to let them defeat me. They want to drive me out. They want to – push me to a nervous breakdown. I'm not going to give them that satisfaction. So, you know, I just kept on going. And it was only really after the by-election when I wrote the book, The Battle for Bermondsey, that I realized the full scale of what had been thrown against me. So where does it come from for you, for Peter? Like, how did you, um, how did you get into doing this? Like, what was the drive? And to be able to do it for so many years and put up with so many uh, violent attacks? Well, my first political inspiration took place in 1963 when I was 11 years old. I heard about the bombing of a black church in Birmingham, Alabama, where four young girls about my own age were murdered by white racists. Now, I was only 11 years old, but I understood immediately just how wrong that was. And it made me take an interest in and support the black civil rights movement led by Dr. Martin Luther King. Um, he became my lodestar. You know? And indeed, if you look at all my subsequent activism, you can see that it's very much modeled on the nonviolent direct action and civil disobedience tactics of Martin Luther King and other civil rights campaigners. Because when I first came out uh, in the late 1960s, um, age 17, there was no LGBT plus movement where I was. So I had no reference point. So I took my reference point as the black civil rights movement. I adapted their ideas and methods to the fight for LGBT plus rights and indeed for other human rights as well. Wow. You know, back in that time, too, it was considered illegal and and um, and you could be put in jail for for having gay relations and and just the attacks. That must have been uh, an incredible battle to to be able to just speak to people on the subject, because so many people thought it was a mental illness or a, a problem. Um, how were you able or what, what was it that you connected with people? on in order to get kind of your point across but it's true you know when i was a young teenager 
uh, male homosexuality was punishable by life imprisonment in Britain. Um, I grew up in Australia, of course, um, and even there, although it wasn't as bad, there was still the prospect of several years imprisonment for being gay and the possibility of uh, enforced compulsory psychiatric treatment, like putting you into a mental home. Um, now, I just thought, <laughs> this is so wrong. I am terrified, but I'm determined to do something to change this so that future generations of LGBT plus people don't have to live with this fear and this threat. Um, you know, I, I, I've got to tell you, I often expected a policeman's knock at the door, you know, which sometimes did happen, but fortunately not to me. Um, but, you know, the passion for justice and equality overrode my fears. So when you look back on things and you look at what you've been through, um, do you feel like, um, do you feel like you got what you wanted? Do you feel like it's accomplished what you set out to do? Well, I can remember in 1969, age 17, um, when I began my LGBT plus activism, uh, I reasoned to myself um, using the example of the black civil rights movement, if black people, if African-Americans are an oppressed, victimized minority, and if they deserve equal rights, then the same applies to LGBT plus people. I also calculated that on the basis of the history of the black civil rights struggle, it would probably take about 50 years to win LGBT plus equality in Western countries like the United States, Canada, Australia, Britain, and so on. And that was just a guesstimate, but it has almost turned out to be right. Hmm. So now, now the, the reason for the film, what, what was the reasoning for the film? What were you hoping to get from putting out this documentary? Well, for me, I want to show through my own story the wider story of equality and social justice struggles, not just on LGBT plus rights, but other issues as well. And I also want to show people that social change is possible. As during my lifetime, um, so many injustices that I grew up with have since been overturned and are now history. So I want to give people a sense of empowerment and confidence that it was possible to change things and to show them how I did it and how they could possibly adapt my methods to their current fight. So what about the, um, the church? How, how do you feel about the Catholic Church? Well, because I was brought up in a very traditional working class family. My father was a lathe operator in an engineering factory. Uh, my parents were devout evangelical Christians. Um, they had a very narrow, blinkered view of the world. You couldn't describe them as liberal in any sense of the word. Um, but I somehow, amazingly, escaped that. And I, I took to heart um, the radical bits of the Bible, and, you know, the, the idea of I am my brother and sister's keeper, love thy neighbor as thyself, um, the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor, blessed are the peacemakers. Um, you know, I adapted those ideas to have a, a, a wider social view about the importance of 
uplifting people who are suffering. And although I'm no longer religious, um, those basic fundamental Christian ideas have been very, very influential in my life. And of course, my mother as well. I mean, she always taught me, uh, don't follow the crowd. Do what is right. Now, I am doing my best to do what is right. I'm following my conscience. Uh, I've done that for the last five decades. Of course, I may be wrong, but all you can do is, I think, follow your conscience. And that is what I've striven to do. I'm really fascinated by, you know, your story in so many ways. I mean, just the amount of bravery that it took for you to do the things that you did. Um, and I'm, I'm curious, sort of, you know, now we're living in this world where, you know, of course, people are marching for the things they believe in and going out and doing the taking action, direct action. But there's also a lot of stuff going on social media. And, you know, I would just be interested in what your thoughts are about what social, how social media plays into activism. Is it effective? Is it ineffective? What are your thoughts? Well, social media has been a huge boon for campaigning. Uh, whether you're concerned about, you know, turning a local derelict site into a park or regenerating your street with trees, um, you know, whatever the issue is, social media enables you to do that much more effectively than the old style of, you know, putting up a fly poster or handing out leaflets on a street corner. But of course, it isn't enough. I mean, it can achieve great things. You know, here in Britain, uh, we won quite a few major battles um, for social change, driven by getting hundreds of thousands, even millions of people to sign online petitions. But usually you do need something more. So if you sign a petition or make a post on social media, you do it in the privacy of your own you know, home or laptop or wherever you're, wherever you're located with a computer or a mobile phone. Um, it's a very individual private act. You know, it's not in the public view. Whereas if you join with others to do a public protest, whether it be a march or a rally or a concert or whatever, then you're, first of all, you're joining together with other people and getting the great sense of emotional support and solidarity of mothers. But you're also making what you're doing very visible. So the media reports that, you know, 10,000 people, 100,000 people, half a million people protested to call for X, Y, and Z. And I think that's very effective in terms of people in power because the point of a protest is not just the protest itself. It's a way of getting media coverage to raise public awareness and consciousness about an issue and also push, putting the authorities under pressure to respond. So I think you need both. Social media has its role, but you also need other forms of visible physical protest and campaigning as well. Probably one of the most uh, jarring parts of that documentary that uh, we've seen is uh, when you put yourself essentially in harm's way with Mugabe, uh, Mugabe's thugs in London. Uh, can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, I was um, involved in two attempted citizen's arrests of the Zimbabwean dictator, Robert Mugabe. Um, I've been asked by human rights defenders in Zimbabwe to do something to raise awareness of the terrible things he was doing. Detention without trial, torture, 
even the murder and rape of political opponents. So I, I organized various protests outside the Zimbabwe embassy in London. Um, but then that didn't make much impact. I thought, how can I use international law to try and get him put on trial? So I contacted Amnesty International and they gave me a dossier that Mugabe had endorsed the torture of two black journalists in Harare, Zimbabwe. So this is very clear, concrete evidence that he had authorized torture, which is a crime under British and the, the laws of most countries in the world today. So then I used the power of citizen's arrest. Um, in British law and the law of many countries, a private citizen has the legal right to arrest someone if they have evidence they've committed a crime. And I had the evidence that Mugabe had authorized the crime of torture. So armed with that, um, uh, the first attempt was in London in 1999. Um, I couldn't get anyone apart from fellow members of the LGBT plus group outrage to join me. You know, everybody else was too busy or too scared. Uh, this wasn't a gay issue. This is, although Mugabe's homophobic, this wasn't a gay issue. It was targeting because of his authorization of torture. But people in outrage, the LGBT plus group, we had a wider view. We were concerned about LGBT rights, but we we're also concerned about all human rights. So four of us lay in wait. Out. I got a tip off about that, that Mugabe had come to London and was staying at a certain hotel. Four of us lay in wait outside his hotel. hotel. Um, and when he drove out, we ran in front of, front of his speeding limousine. Um, then two of us ran behind the car, so it couldn't move forward and couldn't go backward. And then I went to the left rear car door. Amazingly, it was unlocked. I reached in and placed Mugabe under arrest. <laughs> you should have seen the look on his face. He is very dark skinned, but a visible ashen pallor came across his face. His eyes popped, his jaw dropped. He recoiled back in his seat. I think he thought he was going to be killed. And I, I, I held out my hands empty handed to show I didn't have a weapon. Um, but I thought to myself, well, now you know what your victims feel like. <laughs> Only we aren't going to kill you. We're going to take you to a court of law and you'll have a chance to defend yourself. Anyway, we summoned the police. And as soon as they came, they were absolutely gobsmacked that the president of Zimbabwe was under arrest in this limousine. Um, but they weren't interested. They just knocked all the papers out of our hands and they proceeded to arrest us and gave President Mugabe a police escort to go Christmas shopping at Harrods, a big luxurious department store. Um, the second attempt was in Brussels two years later in 2001. Again, I received a tip off that he was going to be uh, having a meeting in the Hilton Hotel in the heart of Brussels. So I lay in wait in the lobby in one of the boutiques by the main entrance and, you know, pose as being a confused tourist looking at ties and scarves and knickknacks in the shop. And as Mugabe and his retinue walked through the lobby to exit, I stumbled out into the middle of his entourage. I smiled and beamed and held out my hand as to shake his hand, which his bodyguards were completely fooled by. So they let me get right up to him. And then I said he was under arrest. Um, uh, well, that didn't last very long because then his bodyguards set on me and I was very badly beaten. Um, but then some of his other bodyguards, while I was being beaten, they shoved him into the big revolving door 
um, the exit of the uh, Hilton Hotel and then tried to push it to make it go faster. So it got stuck. So they were stuck in the big revolving door. So they motioned to the bodyguards attacking me to come and help them release the door. So while they did that, I ran out the fire exit and then confronted Mugabe on the other side of the big revolving door. Um, then I was, when he, when he was released, then I was set upon and eventually beaten unconscious by his bodyguards. Now, I did not want that and I did not really expect that. I thought I'd be roughed up a bit, but not beaten unconscious. However, the positive outcome was that this was beamed on TV all over the world. Um, you know, the positive outcome was that many people concluded if President Mugabe is prepared to have his bodyguards beat unconscious a peaceful protester in the heart of a European capital city in broad daylight in front of the world's media, just imagine what he's doing to his own people when no one is watching. So that was a really big moment in raising global awareness about the tyranny of Mugabe's regime. It's pretty amazing. You know, and another one that was in the uh, documentary was when you were in Russia. Um, what, what started that? Well, again, I'd been asked by Russian activists to go there to support their efforts to hold a LGBT pride parade. Now, protests and parades are legal under the Russian constitution and Russian law. But the mayor of Moscow declared that uh, it was forbidden, it was illegal, and threatened to arrest us. So together with the very brave Russian activists who live there 365 days a year and don't have the protection of a British passport, um, I went there uh, to march anyway. And as soon as we got to City Hall, the assembly point, uh, we were set upon by the riot police. Um, the key Russian activists were all arrested. I managed to escape um, and then reassembled somewhere up the road, uh, quite near the Kremlin, uh, and began talking to reporters. The next thing I know, uh, I get surrounded by far-right extremists, and um, the police just stood there and let them punch and kick me. This time I was not unconscious, but I was very badly dazed. Um, and when I was almost passing out, the police then stepped in to arrest me while they allowed the attackers to walk free. And indeed, when I was in the police van, I saw one of the main attackers walk up to the police lines and show some form of ID and be allowed through, which would indicate there was some level of connivance between the police and these neo-Nazi extremists who attacked me. Yeah, but I just I can't believe. Aren't you aren't you really scared when you go to a country like Russia? Because how much protection would would you really think you'd get in a place like that? Of course, I'm very afraid. Um, you know, I, I was terrified, but I felt a duty to support the Russian activists, like I did to support the Zimbabwean activists, like I do to support the Hong Kong activists and others. Um, you know, when people are under attack, it's only through solidarity and support that they manage to cope and survive. You know, I know from people who have spoken to me, they've said that, you know, your actions, my actions, um, gave them great emotional and psychological comfort. 
um, because just the sense that other people in other countries know and care about their plight is itself a huge boost. Um, but, you know, I, I put all things in perspective, you know, um, I've never been tortured. I've never been, I've been held in police cells, but only for a day or two. Uh, I've never been jailed as such. Um, I've never been disappeared, uh, like happens to human rights defenders in many countries. So I count myself lucky, but, you know, I, I will be honest, you know, I, I am always very afraid and you never know what's going to happen, you know. Um, after that beating that I got in Moscow, just a month later, the same neo-Nazis attacked an environmental Greenpeace-style camp outside of Moscow and put 15 young people in hospital with life-threatening injuries. 15 with life-threatening injuries. So that could have easily, easily happened to me. Hmm. Now, I, I noticed uh, in the film as well that you... Um you like to support even groups that um, it would be sort of a surprise in a sense. Like you, you were really um, there to support the Islamic um, religion as well. Um, does that, that must take some time to, to be able to approach a group that tends not to be very pro pro gay. Well, you know, for me, you for me, human rights are universal and indivisible. They are for everyone, even for people I disagree with. So, in fact, I was not supporting the Islamic religion, but I was defending Muslim people against discrimination and hate crime. I think we have to make a distinction between the idea of Islam and Muslim people. You know, all people, whatever their faith or lack of faith, deserve dignity and respect. You know, they should not be subjected to, to discrimination and hate crime. So I've been at great pains to try and reach out to Muslim communities, mostly in Britain, but some other countries as well, to try and encourage a dialogue, to get them to think about LGBT plus rights, women's rights, the rights of Muslims who don't share their particular brand of Islam. Um, and I think that that has borne positive fruit. Not as much and as fast as I would like, but definitely in Britain, since I've been doing this campaign for the last decade, you can see a sea change in the Muslim community in this country. More and more, particularly among young Muslims, are pro-LGBT, pro-women's rights, pro-democracy and civil liberties. And those changes may have happened anyway eventually, but I certainly think the work of myself and others have helped speed that up. And, you know, at the end of the day, I, I, I put to them a very simple proposition. You don't like being victimized. You understandably reject the prejudice, discrimination and hate crime that Muslim people face. Well, if you don't like it, neither do LGBT plus people. And LGBT plus people are part of your Muslim community. In our community, the LGBT community, we have lots of Muslim people. Now, isn't it time that you reciprocate the respect and rights that you want for yourself? And this really has provoked a big, big debate in the British Muslim community. Um, in the old days, uh, the Muslim organizations used to oppose all the gay law reforms. But in about 2006, 2007, they changed their mind. They said, we can't agree with homosexuality, but we're not going to advocate discrimination. 
So that's already a gain. So yes, this is a, this is a work in progress. Let's talk about your foundation. Um, tell listeners a little bit about what the Peter Thatchell Foundation is. Well, for 45 years, I worked unpaid, <laughs> digging into my own pocket to do human <laughs> rights work. Um, and I did bits of research in journalism, um, but I lived on a very, very tiny minuscule income. Um, so in 2011, a group of my friends and well-wishers banded together and they set up the Peter Tatchell Foundation in order to give me an organizational structure and to give me staff support and finance to better do the work I do. Um, we do about half our work UK-based and about half of it supporting democracy and human rights movements around the world in China and Hong Kong, Russia, Nigeria, Uganda, Pakistan, Saudi Arabia and Iran mostly. Um, then about half of our work is on LGBT plus issues and half is about other human rights issues like civil liberties and free speech. So we are a very small organization, but we, I think we do a lot of it. We're, we are very good value for money. You know, we look after every single, um, penny or cent that we get given in donations. Okay. So now how do people find you and how do they find the uh, foundation? Uh, the website is www.petertatchellfoundation.org. And on that website, you'll see a resume of our, our current and past campaigns. In the top right-hand corner, there's a little button which says join us. And if you give us your email address, we will send you every Thursday a weekly bulletin on a range of human rights issues, some LGBT, some other issues. Um, most are quite serious, but occasionally we put in some funny, quirky ones as well. Uh, it's totally free. There's no charge. So just sign up by going to that uh, join us button. Next to it is the button which says donate. And if you're supportive of the work that I do and the foundation does, then please consider a donation because we don't get any institutional funding from the government or any you know, other financial foundations or corporations. We depend entirely on donations from well-wishers. So every, every little bit you give or can afford to give, it's most, most gratefully received. Oh, and we'll have that up on our website as well so people can go to it while they're listening and find you with one click. Um, I, I also noticed Elton John was involved in this. Wasn't he like an executive producer or something in the film? Uh, how did that come about? Well, initially, it was a really hard battle to get this film made. Uh, Chris Amos, the director, he tried various BBC TV programs and you know various funders for film and TV. They all said no. He then went back to Australia and uh, where he's from and found Wild Bear Entertainment. And they, they took it up immediately. They were very impressed. Um, and then what Chris did was produce a little, um, I suppose, a, a very rough draft, tra rough draft trailer, uh, which he sent to David Furnish and Elton John. And they were so impressed that they jumped on board as executive producers and helped get the film made and finished. And of course, through their influence, um, got Hating Peter Tatchell uh, accepted and hosted by Netflix. 
Pretty amazing. Um, how's how's life for you? But like, have you been able to hold a a relationship or anything going through all this? Like, is it is it something that has interfered with um, Peter's love life? Well, certainly, I I do and have worked extraordinary hours. I mean, a, a twelve to fifteen hour day is pretty typical. Seven days a week. Um, you know, I've got maybe an afternoon afternoon off here and there, um, but that's about it. I haven't, I haven't had a proper holiday since 2008. Um, but uh, it has put a strain on relationships, plus, of course, the violence and threats against me. I can remember some years ago inviting a new date home for dinner, and we were just sitting down to dinner when a brick smashed through the window and <laughs> bounced across the dinner table, smashing the plates and sending food in all directions. Um, he was a lovely guy, but he said, look, I, I just can't cope with this. You know, this is just too scary for me. So, yeah, it has, you know, it has taken a pretty toll on my relationships. But fortunately, for the last two years or so, I've been in a relationship with someone and um, it's going really great so far. Thank you. Oh, that's good. That's good. That's good. So, so what do you expect uh, to, to, to go to now? Like, what's, what's next for Peter? Well, we have so many issues on the table. Yeah. <laughs> um, we're at the moment um, organizing the lead organizing, organizing group for the big Reclaim Pride march in London in July. Um, Pride in London, the official Pride organizers, most people think they've lost the plot. You know, that it's pride is too commercial, too corporate. Um, it's, it's not community focused and never mentions human rights. So we are organizing a Reclaim Pride March, um, which is going to take place when pride should have taken place. But the pride organizers have postponed it till September because of the coronavirus pandemic. And we're going to make, you know, a grassroots community pride. So that's one thing. Another thing we're doing is um, we're very much championing freedom of speech. And, you know, there's been lots of attempts and some successes to stop freedom of speech. Um, you know, sometimes of, of people that I disagree with and sometimes of people with whom I agree. Um, but I think that in a free society, the way to deal with differences is not by bans or prescriptions, but by challenging people having open debate, showing why they're wrong, producing counter evidence. Um, so we're doing a lot to try and, you know, counter this view to cancel critics. You know, some critics, if they advocate violence or extreme hatred, I'm fine about them being cancelled. But if they just have a disagreement, like, for example, uh, recently a street preacher, a Christian street preacher, was arrested in London for simply saying he thought homosexuality was immoral and wrong. Well, obviously, I totally disagree with him, but I think that in a free society, he has a right to express that view, providing he doesn't harangue and harass people, providing he doesn't threaten or insult people. And he wasn't doing any of those things. So I've offered to stand as a witness in his defense if the case comes to court. Um, we're doing a lot of work to support um, Democrats and oppositionists in China, Hong Kong, and Russia, you know, these are countries where basic fundamental freedoms, the right to free and open elections, uh, doesn't, do not exist. 
Um, likewise, you know, in, in Uganda, they just had a fraudulent election where the main democratic opposition leader, Bobby Wine, was put under house arrest. There were, he was, there were shots fired at him. Some of his aides were beaten and one was even killed. Um, yet Uganda is still a member of the Commonwealth of Nations, despite the fact that it says in the Commonwealth Charter, which Uganda has signed, that um, human rights are absolutely a fundamental, inviolable principle of being a member state. So we just think that, you know, all these different human rights abuses have to be challenged. We have to support people in those countries who are making those challenges. Yeah. How, how was COVID for you? How was it for your work with the foundation? Did it sort of get in the way? Well, certainly we lost um, quite a lot of donors because many people, of course, were furloughed and unable to work. Um, but apart from not being able to do physical meetings and conferences and events and protests like we used to, everything has carried on as normal. So I've done lots of events online. Um, we still do a huge amount of advice and support work for victims of discrimination, hate crime, police malpractice um, for LGBT plus and other refugees who are fleeing persecution. That all carries on. So it hasn't made a huge major impact. Um, and you know, it, it was the case initially that when the lockdown began in Britain uh, last end of last March, um, a lot of NGOs here basically faltered. So we were absolutely swamped with requests and that put us under a huge amount of strain. But, you know, we coped. And we, 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 we made sure in the end that everyone who needed help got it. Yeah, it, it sure makes you wonder the um, the way the world reacted to coronavirus, COVID, compared to the HIV virus and, and uh, the, the, the speed at which they um, accomplished a, a vaccine. Yeah, Anthony Fauci um, has just recently said that the experience of the HIV pandemic in the 1980s and 1990s was almost like a trial run for COVID. You know, lots of the measures in terms of research uh, and testing and validation of trials uh, that was used in the COVID pandemic were actually initiated during the AIDS pandemic. And so many of the researchers who worked on COVID had actually previously worked on HIV and AIDS. And this gave them a, a backstory of skills and methods and techniques and collaborations um, and systems to use when it came to COVID. So I think the AIDS pandemic has actually made it much, much more effective uh, in the scientific and medical response to coronavirus sure sure a backlash with um science but you know people that anti-maskers and saying they want their freedom you know it's the same type of people that were um wanting to put uh you know gays or hiv positive the gay disease but you know isolate them put them in a put them on an island or something it's kind of the same mentality it is it is and um you know, it's it's sad that people cannot make a legitimate distinction between um, you know, the right of freedom of expression and freedom of assembly 
in the context of a health emergency and health crisis. You know, all human rights laws have certain exemptions. And one of them is in order to prevent a, a public health emergency. And I very reluctantly supported the restrictions on movement under the lockdowns. But I understood it was necessary to stop this pandemic and to save lives. So providing a response is temporary and proportionate, then it is perfectly legitimate under international and national human rights law. And I dread to think that if we hadn't had lockdowns, um, many, many more hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of people worldwide would have died. Here in Britain, you know, the statisticians are saying that because we delayed our lockdown by two to three weeks, probably at least 10,000 people died unnecessarily, at least 10,000. And, you know, that's not just a statistic. That's someone's husband, wife, partner, child, grandfather, grandmother, cousin, uncle. You know, these are actual human lives. And it's so sad that they were lost. You know, on a, on a positive end here, um, <laughs> was that do you have any memories of something that really surprised you? Someone doing something really good over your years of, of, of fighting for equal rights? Well, I think you actually see one example in the film, Hating Peter Tatchell. Um In the Netflix documentary, uh, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, Dr. George Carey, um, starts off by calling me a bully. Now, for those of you who don't know, um, when Dr. Carey was appointed the head of the Worldwide Anglican Communion in 1991, he made a point of saying that gay people were sinful and must repent, that homosexuality was inferior to heterosexuality, and that therefore the law of the land should discriminate. So he advocated, for example, uh, that employers should have the right to discriminate against LGBT plus staff in certain circumstances, that there should be no legal recognition of same-sex relationships, no civil partnerships, no civil marriage. Um, he said that same-sex couples were unfit to foster or adopt children. Uh, he said a whole host of things that were very bad and negative. Um, we tried to meet him for eight years to discuss our concerns, but he wouldn't meet us. He wouldn't even meet members of his own church who were lesbian or gay. So faced with that intransigence on Easter Sunday in 1998, when he was delivering his Easter sermon, we went into Canterbury Cathedral, the center and home of the Anglican Church worldwide, and walked into the pulpit to criticize the Archbishop over his support for legal discrimination against LGBT plus people. Um, this was televised and broadcast around the world. Um, it had never happened. Nothing like that had ever happened before. Um, you know, we were totally respectful. We weren't abusing of the Archbishop or the Christian faith. We simply said things like discrimination is not a Christian value. Anyway, we were arrested. I was eventually charged with, quote, indecent behavior in a church. <laughs> I didn't drop my trousers, but under the Ecclesiastical Courts Jurisdiction Act of 1860, 
which is formally part of the Brawling Act of 1551, any interruption of a minister of religion is deemed to be indecent. So I was taken to court. I could have been jailed for several months. I could have been fined, a huge fine. But the magistrate accepted it was a brief, peaceful, dignified protest. And he fined me the princely sum of £18.60, about um, less than 30 US dollars. Um, <laughs> the upshot was that um, at the time, the archbishop was very angry. But the positive outcome of that protest was that he dramatically reduced. He didn't stop, but he did dramatically reduce his publicly public advocacy of anti-gay discrimination. Um, he also did meet with the lesbian and gay Christian movement for the first time. And a number of bishops of the Church of England who were shocked, claiming they didn't know that Carey, Dr. Carey, the archbishop, was saying these things, they spoke out publicly as Anglican bishops in support of LGBT plus equality. So it was a win-win-win for us, you know, three positive outcomes. Now, in the uh, in the film, in the documentary, towards the end, Archbishop Carey um, sort of compares what we did to, I suppose, Jesus overturning the tables in the temple <laughs> and um, said that, um, you know, the work I was doing was, in retrospect, in many respects, um, Christ-like. Now, I think that's going a bit too far, but I think it was very generous and, of course, very surprising that he would go on public record and say that. So I, I pay tribute to him for having the humility and the generosity to do that. And I like that because I believe in redemption. You know, I, I don't take the view... Once you say a bad thing, you're an enemy forever. I want enemies to become friends. And I'm always trying to do what I can to persuade people who are perhaps against the human rights of black and minority people or against women's equality or, or speak out against immigrants and refugees. I'm always trying to engage with them, to win them over, to make them friends and allies, not enemies. So, Peter, with such a, a busy life, what do you do in your downtime? Do you have any downtime? What, what's Peter do for fun? Well, <laughs> not nearly as much as I would like. At the moment, I'm working 16-hour days, and I'm getting about 2,000 messages and requests every single day. And they're not nonsense. They're all, like, important things, invitations to speak, write things, be interviewed, um, people wanting help with, you know, personal um, issues they face of discrimination and being victims of hate crime and so on. Um, but I do occasionally get a bit of downtime. Like, like two days ago, I jogged to the local, local nature reserve for 15 minutes, um, lay in the glorious summer sun for another 15 minutes, um, listening to birdsong, watching wildflowers and butterflies. Um, that was a lovely little break. Not long enough, I agree, but you know, it was a break. Well, it makes you appreciate the time, I guess, right? If it's it's very valuable, you know, it's short time. Yeah, you know, I love my work. I love what I do because, you know, I'm so lucky to have been involved in so many successful campaigns over the years. And that is a great motivator and drive onwards, you know. If you have a success, then I don't, you know, sit back and think, oh, I'm so successful. I just think, 
what's the next thing? You know, that, that's, that, that's good. Good we done. Good we did that. What's the next thing to fight for? So I'm always pushing things forward. Um, and also, of course, you know, I get lots of positive feedback from individuals and campaigns that I've helped. You know, people say, you know, thank you for helping me get refugee status in Britain. You know, I no longer live under threat of death in my homeland of Nigeria or Pakistan or Saudi Arabia or Iran. Um, it's great when you get a campaign saying, you know, your advice and tips really worked. You know, we've got, you know, we've got, we've got an, an agreement by the government to change this policy. So all of that's incredibly uplifting and motivating. And, you know, that's, I'm sort of driven by the adrenaline of success, I guess. Well, Peter, we really appreciate, um, your time, all of your work, and we're, we're, we're glad people like you are in the world. So um, you, you, we, we like to say thank you anyway, and, uh, and um, we recommend people see the documentary, go to the foundation, donate uh, time, money, effort, whatever you can. It's all appreciated. So our guest today has been Peter Thatchell. Thank you for being, being here, Peter. Thank you so much. Now I'll leave you with this message, my very simple motto, don't accept the world as it is, dream of what the world could be, and then help make it happen. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. By George, he's got it. It is the end. I'll say it. If you're lying to me, I'll be back. This is Peter Production of Something Weird Media.